FYI, this podcast contains spoilers. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 423 of the podcast of Ghost Nicked. Snicked. I'm your host, Jason. I forbid you listeners quit my podcast of Venable. I'm <laughs> uh, just kidding, you can do what you want. But um, anyway, this is a, uh, a very special flashback episode, um, almost entirely being recorded um, on the request and behalf of Grant Richter from um, the Cable Guide podcast and the, uh, the Superman I guess Twitter blog is the best way to describe that. He just does, a, he does multiple threads about a Superman reading comics. Um, and he had, you know, I, <laughs> I've mentioned several times on the podcast that, you know, if I had more time or I ever wanted to do another show, I would really like to do like a similar show just to the podcast that goes nicked, but um, Gambit's Gumbo, kind of an index show on Gambit, right? Um, for a while, I kind of fell out of favor with Gambit. Like, I was like, ah, oh, he was overrated. I remember him from being a teenager, but he was kind of a cool guy and maybe a little bit of a douche and, you know, kind of fell out of favor. But going back in, in my flashback reading and going through my X-Men reading and seeing how he comes on the scene, yeah, there's those there's the stereotypical traits, right? Kind of the, the 80s cool guy action star rolled into one, you know, the, the playing cards, the, the moppy hair, the trench coat, uh, the bow staff, the smoking, the being a, a rogue scoundrel, uh, well, no pun intended there as he uh, relentlessly pursues the rogue, but you know, almost like a little bit of Han Solo wrapped up with, you know, I don't know, he's not really like buff or, or punchy enough to be Bruce Willis, but you can get that idea, right? Kind of that flavor of character. And there's definitely, that's definitely some of there, but I don't know. Uh, at least for now, you know, in the first couple of years of his, of his existence, I'm buying into the charm, right? Um, I know he lays it on a little thick, but there's just something, something about kind of the lovable, gruffy scoundrel that I'm remembering liking, and I'm, I'm still liking it, and maybe that'll change, and I'm in no way committing to a change in format, but uh, anyway, I had talked about doing like Gambit's Gumbo sections or, or specials or whatever, because that would have been the name of the podcast if that's what I did, and Grant was like, basically said, I'm not going to tell you how to do your show, but you should do that, <laughs> and I love and respect Grant a lot, and so I'm going to give it a try. So this episode is going to be totally Gambit-centric. No Wolverine at all. So it's a very special Gambit's Gumbo episode. Uh, it's going to focus on Uncanny 298. Now, if I do decide to keep doing these, I'll probably just nail them on the ends of episodes. But some scheduling stuff kind of did not allow for this. Um, in hindsight, had I thought about this sooner or made this decision sooner, I probably would have just tacked this on to the end of... Uh, my wrap-up on Executioner's song, right? Because it's the next story after. You know, we covered 297 on that episode. This is 298. I could have just stuck it on the end and fine. And I'll, that's probably what I'll do if I decide to keep doing this. A lot of that decision is going to be based on whether you guys appreciate it or not, or like it, or think it's a good idea. So definitely make your voices heard if you so desire or want to be 
part of the decision, then let me know. Like, yeah, it's cool to have some time dedicated to Gambit, or just stick to the claws, man. We want claws, not cards. Or your team claws and cards, and that's fine. So we just gotta let me know what you think. But we are gonna spend at least a little bit of time this afternoon um, talking about Uncanny X-Men 298. Um, and I can't put it on a future episode because I already have those the next two flashbacks mapped out. And there's really no room for it on there with the guests I have lined up. Um, so we're just going to do a, a, a bonus episode on Gambus Gumbo and Uncanny X-Men 298. That's enough preamble. Let's talk about some comics, huh? So 298 is For the Children. Written by Scott Lobdell. Pencils by Brandon Peterson. Inked by Al Milgram. Letters by Chris Eliopoulos. Colors by Marie Javins. And the cover is by Peterson and Milgram. It is a pretty good cover. It's like a orange background with action lines and a lot of action under the logo, right? And then at the bottom it says Acolytes Return. Uh, so this is Gambit and the Acolytes. Um, in front and center we have Gambit uh, charging up at Ace of Spades. And then right behind him punching Frenzy we have Bishop. And then behind that we have a couple more Acolytes fighting Jean Grey. And one of the acolytes, the one with the, uh, the one who's not armor, right? And then she has, like, the, uh, the semi-solid, like, it's tangible but invisible exoskeleton. Or it's not really invisible, but it's, like, outlined in purple, but it's clear where you can see her still inside. Anyway, she's grabbing a kid, and the X-Men are obviously trying to save the kid. Um, you know, it's a pretty cool cover. During our Executioner song coverage, I kind of bagged on Peterson a little bit saying that he would get good later, but he wasn't there yet. Um, and then, on Song's End, on 297, I ex- expressed that I thought his art got a lot better. Uh, I attributed a lot of that to the Dan Panosian inks. But uh, here with Milgram, it looks pretty good, too. It's a pretty nice cover. And not to spoil, but the art inside is pretty decent, too. So, I'm going to do this one a little bit different, since we're only doing one comic, and it's a little bit out of format anyway. Um, I was going to kind of go through it, you know, a little bit at a time instead of doing a snazzy synopsis like I normally do on the flashbacks. I knew this more like I would a modern comic. So we start off with uh, Professor X inside some kind of machine. Um, it's not Cerebro, it's like something else. And he's in like a techno spandex suit. <laughs> Don't really know how to describe it. It's like an all black spandex bodysuit and it's got like red, orange, and yellow nodes on it. Yeah, and so, you know, kind of just that electric feeling. And so we find out that the room he's in is like this massive, like, media room. He's getting input and data from all these different places, like databases and news channels. And, you know, I guess nowadays it'd be like people's blogs and websites and all that stuff. And he's using his manic mutant powers of his brain to kind of compress it all, look for things he needs to know about. And while he's doing this, he's interrupted by Bishop, who basically comes in and says, you know what, I need to quit the X-Men. I grew up in a future and where my methods worked. It was a dark future, a grim future, and I was a dark and grim soldier, and that was necessary for me to do my job. Now, where instead of trying to restore a dream that's dead or just moving on from the dream and doing something else, there's still hope. There's still hope of, like, coexistence and we're not really a mutant police force or, like, a, you know, global 
you know, save the day for us. And, you know, I've learned in my, inter my short interactions here since I've come to this timeline that my methods don't really work. I'm not a good X-Man. I'm not a good fit. I should quit. And Xavier basically tells him, no, you're, <laughs> he says, your resignation is not accepted. Do I make, do I make myself clear? Basically says, you know what, you, you're not a quitter and you can adapt, right? Like, part of being at the school here is not just to be an X-Man, it's to be a student. It's to learn, it's to expand yourself. And you've recognized, right, that maybe your methods are a little more aggressive than what's needed here. And you may not be able to just flip a switch and just be a lot more calm all the time. But you're aware and you can work on it. And that's what, you know... Being, being at Xavier School is about is learning how to better yourself. So we're not giving up on you. We're not throwing you away. You're not. <laughs> now you can wonder if, if Xavier, especially through modern lens, is was is more like, well, it's better to have you here than running out <laughs> in the wild. But one of the things I've I've noticed since the return of Xavier, you know, and the launch of the solo series and the split into the blue and gold teams between X Men and Uncanny. And the thing I remember about 90s Xavier is he's a much nicer guy. <laughs> like, really has these, like, really good intentions for the students. And, you know, some of the stuff you see, well, even the early stuff where he's, like, mind-wiping people left and right. It was kind of a jerk to the students, but was kind of a, a fatherly jerk, right? And then, you know, more modern interpretations where, you know, before... Uh, House of X, he was you know, kind of barely a good guy, right? Like, I mean, he was on the X-Men, he was a hero, but he just made so many bad decisions and did so much just garbage to his students and was, you know, borderline abusive at times. But that's not where we are with Xavier right now, you know, in, in, in 1992 going into 93. Um, you know, since he's come back from the Shi'ar Empire and been a part of the X-Men again, not perfect, but he's He's very obviously, you know, written with, like, really good intentions and looking out for the best part of his students, really trying to be, like, a mentor and a teacher. And that was, you know, that was kind of my first real impression of Xavier, right? Reading this stuff as a teenager. And, you know, it tracks, right, the trajectory he's taken and that, you know, writers have put him through, especially, you know, Grant Morrison and beyond. It, it makes sense. It's a... It's, uh, it's something that you can kind of see how he got from point A to point B or, or from maybe from point A to point B and back to A. Um, and, and there's still some shadows of that, even in on Krakoa with the Dawn of X stuff or the House of X, Dawn of X, Reign of X stuff. But um, that's just not what we have at this time. Not Again, not saying he's perfect or he doesn't make any bad calls, but a very obvious um, intention to do the right thing, to do good, to be kind. Um and so, yeah, it was just kind of an interesting interesting take to kind of revisit that time in Xavier's comics career. Um, so, and anyway, we go into this uh, school, uh, Our Mother of the Sacred Heart, um, up, up the Hudson River, it says. And those two nurses or doctors or aides that were at Xavier's that got uh, their bodies turned into Native Americans, uh, they are here on Xavier's behalf uh, working at this... Um, school, orphanage, hospital, you know, what, all the things that it is. But the acolytes come and knock them out. So anyway, then we move back to the mansion, and we have Jean Grey, 
in all her 90s yellow slash orange. This this issue is very yellow, yellow and blue. Um, 90s costume, and she's in there with Archangel, and the goal is to make Bishop and Gambit train together so they can be better teammates, they can get along, because there's a lot of hostility between them, what with Bishop accusing Gambit of being a traitor. Um, doesn't really go over very well, so, um, and they're told to drop their weapons. So this is kind of a funny scene where, like, Bishop drops his gun, and Gambit throws, like, a whole deck of cards on the floor, like, 52-card pickup. Um, and they say, basically, uh, the, the, the mission of the game is get across the room and touch me. She probably couldn't use the word tag, but she used the word touch, and Gambit, being the scoundrel he is, takes advantage of it, says... You know, basically, you want me to touch you, all you got to do is ask. <laughs> and, and she's like, uh, gross. Um, actually, she's not, but she probably should have been. Um, but anyway, they're like, well, that's pretty easy. We just got to, we're just going to walk over there. What's, what's wrong? And Archangel's like, you have to get through me. And not only just me, but here's a bunch of holograms of me. It's like an army of Archangels. And just like this sky of Archangels shows up in the danger room. And... He and or the holograms are both start flying out and shooting out like the metal shards of his wing, um, the blades that come out from his metal wings. And I'm, I'm guessing some of those are just not real and won't hurt them. But still, it's got to be pretty scary not knowing which ones are which. And so, um, you know, they, uh, they banter a little bit about you know, kind of Bishop's accusations. Uh, they kind of realize that the point of this game is to make them learn how to trust each other. And, you know, Bishop says, you know, he'll give it a try, right? You haven't done anything yet. Uh, maybe I can and can calm down a little bit. After all, you are, at least right now, still an X-Man, and, you know, I need to respect that. And so then we go back to Central Park. New York City, New York City, and uh, we have some snow in the park, and uh, Charlotte Jones has agreed to meet Storm and Xavier, and but Xavier gets a, a massive psychic SOS, so he calls the meeting short, and he also calls the danger room session short, projects his astral head screaming into the room knocking down Gene and Gambit and Archangel and Bishop and everyone just down to the floor it says you must get on the blackbird and follow these coordinates immediately lives have been lost and more may be lost and then um, the other guy uh, the guy who was uh, with Xavier is driving a school bus back up to the school but he's like uh, this is not right it's too quiet there's no one out here to pick up, like, to greet the kids, like, something's wrong. And he kind of, like, he puts the bus in park and decides, you know what, maybe I should back up. But then there's this big explosion, and we see the Acolytes. Um, and they're there, and they mean business. And they come at the bus, uh, but um, the guy is able to shoot through the windshield at the bus. Um... And, you know, shoots one of the acolytes and kills him, we find out later. He was one of the triplets, so there's only two-thirds of them. They're down to twins. They even say uh, later, like, we used to be triplets. Um, but the exoskeleton uh, lady, she grabs the drive bus driver, throws him in the air. But then our X-Men show up, and uh, 
is Jean and Gambit and Bishop and Archangel. And um, there's a cool line. It's actually a really f nice page. And there's a, a cool line. They're, they're falling out of the Blackbird and Bishop's charging up his hand. And Gambit's throwing out some charged cards. And he says, Bishop, you know how Storm's always saying that at times you should mellow out? Rein yourself in? And Bishop's like, what about it? And Gambit's like, this is not one of those times. And, um... Then we get a nice big human lovers from Frenzy, and Gene recognizes Frenzy. Uh, of course, remember Frenzy debuted in uh, X Factor as a villain, and is an acolyte here now. Um, before she takes a turn as an X Man, um, that distracts Gene, and then the the guys like shoot at it. Uh, so there's a big fight between the X Men and the acolytes. Uh, Warren gets knocked down. He gets shot out of the sky by this flame stuff. Um, and Jean's like, nope, that's not cool. And she uses her TK to tear the exoskeleton apart and then slams the two twins together and they start to merge. Um, and then Bishop runs up and says, I can absorb their power. And then the bus starts to catch on fire and our ex are like, we got to get the kids out of the bus. Um, there's a really cool scene. They're running through, like, the playground. And one of the acolytes is chasing Gambit. And, you know, we've seen him charge stuff before, but there's, like, a tire swing. And so he basically pushes the swing and charges it as he pushes it. And it spins over the rail, right? So, like, if it's hanging, he swings it like a pendulum. And it goes all the way over this, the rail and comes back behind Frenzy and hits her in the back and blows up and it's, it's a really nice little use of Gambit's powers, right? He's not necessarily throwing anything, he's using like a natural motion of an item and charges it while it's in motion uh, to take a, a foe out. It's a, it's a pretty cool move there. Um, so then our, our heroes continue to try to save the bus. Archangel busts out of the rubble from where he was burnt and it turns out the Acolytes are looking for a mutant child at this school. Um, and so they rip open the bus. The exoskeleton lady grew her exoskeleton back. She pulls the kid out and she's like, Whoa, wait a second. This ain't right. And she's like, uh, Xavier played us all for fools. The child is obviously flawed, even by human standards, which already immediately kind of started uh, rubbing me the wrong way. Um, like, what are the, what, where are they going with this? Um... But the child is, is not what they're looking for. So they decide, you know, we're just going to kill all the kids. And, of course, the X-Men are, like, floored. Like, not even Magneto would kill children. And they're like, how dare you blaspheme Magneto? He does whatever it takes all the time, no matter what. And we'll kill whoever we want. And they try to blow up the bus. And, and Gambit, uh, again, does something kind of new here. Uses his cards with the energy that he absorbs and puts into the cards. And he lay, lays down like an energy wall. He throws the cards like, push, 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 and like spaces it out. And, and the energy like kind of pushes or holds back the fire a little bit. And Archangel flies some kids out of the bus. Gene, uh, you know, telepathically rips off one of the doors. Some kids can, can come out. And then just in the nick of time, we get a crack, 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 boom as Storm shows up and comes down with lightning and rain to try to put the fire out. And she looks great. And she's like, by the bright lady, what monsters are these that would threaten the lives of children, no matter what the cause? And she flies down. She looks awesome. 
uh, continues to rain on the bus. Um, and Gambit's like, uh, monsters had seen that have escaped. Fortunately, we saved the children. And then Storm's like, did we Gambit? Or did we sentence him to a world where no one is safe from his brother? Which was pretty pessimistic for Storm. But, um, and Gambit says, if we were fighting to fight on our own, definitely. But Daddy had to case Stormy, not by half. And of course, remember, you know, Gambit and Storm have a very um, complex relationship. You know, he's, he helped save her when she was in her child form. Um, and, you know, now she's one of the team leaders. And it's just this uh, very interesting kind of dichotomy. They're on different teams now, and that kind of bothered Gambit at first. Um, so I'm sure he's glad to see her again. And then we, we go to a news conference and basically... Um, Senator Kelly is like, I knew something like this would happen. You know, they say not all the mutants are dangerous, and yes, the X-Men saved the school, but the X-Men were, even through good mutants, they were fighting bad mutants, and it's just, it's dangerous. Dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. And we need to do something about it. Um, for the children. And then Professor, we see the TV turn off, and Professor X sitting in a dark room with a moon behind him with a, one of the biggest TV remotes I've ever seen. <laughs> so what had happened was that... And Rob Dell actually handles this pretty well. Uh, whatever your thoughts about him as a person now, um, there's really not a whole lot to hate about this, this part of his X-Men run, like this part right here. Um, so what had happened is the kid that the Acolytes are looking for had a mutation, but it was a mutation that we see in real life. Uh, yeah, Down syndrome. And, you know, Professor X had, had knew about the kid in the school. Um, we don't really get much more detail than that. Like, I mean, there's down, kids with Down syndrome all over the place. Why did Professor X single out this kid or have knowledge of this kid that the acolytes were using? Because they, they say Xavier played us for a fool, so you get the idea, right? And they got some kind of information from Xavier to look for this kid or to feel like there was a mutant here. Um, and then having Xavier's old uh, aides and nurses, you know, as employees of the school, maybe that was the sign. But Xavier had, you know, they said they were there on Xavier's behalf. So other than that, we don't really get a lot of references to why this this one kid with Down syndrome is, is of particular interest to Xavier, but for whatever reason, the Acolytes interpreted that as it was a mutant, and they're trying to, you know, get mutant children and pull them up to their asteroid to be Acolytes, right? Um, you know, the X-Men had thought that the Acolytes would have just disbanded after Magneto's death. Obviously, they probably should have done a little more follow-up, knowing that something like this was likely to happen. But, you know, you could argue that they didn't have a lot of time right? Kind of went boom, boom, boom from the Magneto story to, you know, Omega Red to, you know, the Mojo World to, you know, basically Executioner's Song with Strife and Apocalypse and Sinister. So, you know, not, not, not that there's been a lot of downtime, but, you know, I'm glad we're getting back to the Acolyte story. Uh, I think this will carry on through at least 300, I think, um, at least to various degrees. You know, it's, it's interesting, an interesting plot point. Um, obviously, the X-Men do the right thing. They're protecting everyone. Uh, they hold this kid in high value, as, as you should, because they're a human being and deserve all the dignity and love that all humans deserve. But, yeah, 
it, it takes a little bit of deafness of storytelling, right? Because we're in this fictional world where mutations are not... So there's no mutations for, like, medical issues. I mean, generally speaking, these mutations that we see in the X-Men are for all these superpowers, right? And, you know, they grow wings, they have telekinesis, they can charge playing cards, they have bone claws. You know, powers that people would want, like the acolytes would want to use and either join to their side or, or stand up for or whatever. But they immediately see the kid with Down syndrome and kind of reclassify the mutation as not being of any value. So there's a couple of things you want to you want to think about there, right? Um, one, uh, something like Down syndrome is a real-life genetic mutation, but it's something that, you know, if you know anyone that has had children with Down syndrome, and, and I have some experience with that, you know, it can be a very challenging, but also a very rewarding journey, right? Um, and there are ups and downs. There are things that go with that, that that are hard to deal with, and there are things that you would not trade the world for. And it's a different kind of thing, right? I mean, I think the symbolism, right, of mutation can apply, right? Because there are people that make certain choices about offspring or care or whatever based on that and we see that reflected um in the x-men like we would any marginalized group like you know parents disowning their children because they're mutants right or or keeping their children locked up or or trying to hide them from the world or whatever because they're mutants and we see that like in real life parallels right whether your kid is down syndrome or has a disability or um you know is has a different sexual preference than you, right? Like, like that's kind of what the X-Men stand for, right? That, that, that marginalized group and, and fighting for that identity, dignity, protection, right? That we all know that they, that everyone deserves. And, I don't know, it's just, it's, I don't really know what I'm trying to say. I just found it interesting and it could have gone really, really wrong really fast and it didn't, right? Comparing like a real life mutation that people really experience you know, all the time, versus, you know, this fantastical idea of a mutation in fiction. And, and putting those both in a fictional universe and playing them against each other, um, it, it could have been written very poorly and been very offensive, and I don't feel like it necessarily was. Um, I, you know, the X-Men come and, and save the kid, they, they um, esteem him, right? They give him value and love, and and that's what they need to do. It also kind of further vilifies the acolytes, because the acolytes are kind of a sympathetic villain group, right? They're a sympathetic set of foes. Um, they followed Magneto. They were disciples of his his vision of how to handle being a mutant in the world, right? To to be a little more militant and fighting against oppression. Um, to be a little more almost self-imposed segregation, like pulling out and taking control and setting up your own space to live. Um, you know, that's the whole asteroid thing and stuff like that. And the acolytes went up there and followed him up there, and they lost their leader. But the idea, though, would be that if you're going to do that, and even like in modern-day stories with Krakoa, like all mutants are welcome. There's no specification of, I mean, because even the bad guys are there, right? Um, 
there's no specification of this mutant is worthy of being here or not. It's just mutants are here. And so fighting for Magneto's dream, you would think the Acolytes would be like, well, any kind of mutant is, is good and we want to help. But they almost have their own kind of prejudice inside their paradigm where they, they determine that this mutation does not qualify as a mutant. It's just a human with uh, an aberration, a genetic aberration. And it wasn't... So, again, you start talking about, well, what does it mean to be a mutant in the Marvel Universe? Is is it just because your genes are mutated, or is there is there a specific chromosomal X gene that we talk about, right? And so they, they determine that, yeah, this kid had a mutation, but it's not the X gene, it's the... Uh, Oh, I forget the word. The try. Uh, I won't. I won't try to say it, and I don't have it handy to look up. Um, but you know, we've identified right the genes that, that duplicate differently that lead to. Or actually, I guess we would say they triplicate, right? If I remember right. Um, but that, that we like we identified the genetic markers that get us to Down syndrome, and so maybe in the Marvel universe we're saying that we can identify the genetic markers that lead to all these random mutant powers. Um, and that's, that's fine, I guess. I, yeah, this this uh, podcast has gone a very different direction than I thought when I just sat down and read, read this comic. Um, hopefully you find this interesting. I'm probably going to cut it off pretty short here, though. I don't want to continue to muddy the waters of, of this fictional adventure story with uh, genetic politics or whatever you want to call that. Um, I just thought it was really interesting. I thought I thought it made the X-Men look good. It made the Acolytes look bad, right? The, the drawing that distinction and drawing that value. Now, you could argue if there is a real distinction, then they weren't necessarily being uh, bigoted towards the kid. They were just saying, oh, he's just a regular human, and we hate all humans, so we're not... We're not devaluing him because of the Down syndrome. We're devaluing him because of he's a baseline. You know, he's, he's a he's not Homo superior. He's just you know, regular human. So that's possible, right? And in that case, they don't look quite as bad. But you get the feeling though that Lou Lobdell is trying to draw a line and say no, there's something specific about them not wanting something they perceive as even less than human or a disability. And maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe I've seen prejudice in that area that I abhor and wish I didn't see. And maybe I'm applying some experience there that that is not what was intended in the story. But nonetheless, I, again, just think it was really interesting. Well, let's, let's talk about Gambit, right? There's some pretty cool things here for Gambit that happened in this story. One, he gets to kind of play with the gold team, right? Um, which he hasn't done a lot of yet. Um, you know, being with Gene and Storm and Bishop uh, and Archangel is a little bit different than him being with, you know, Wolverine and Psylocke and Cyclops like he normally is, and Rogue, of course. Um, so it was cool to see him in a little bit different context, kind of in the other X-Men book, <laughs> you know. Um, that was fun. Then also, um, him having to play nice with Bishop, right? them having to train together and ultimately go on this mission together and cooperate when there's definite hostility there, right? Like the blueberry pie thing. <laughs> um, or sorry, boysenberry, I think it was. Um, you know, but, you know, Bishop comes out of the gate immediately, recognizes LeBeau um, as what he feels like is the witness or eventually the traitor in his future 
and doesn't understand why the X-Men trust him or why he's there and he wants to put him down and he's kind of forcibly has his mind changed by the rest of the X-Men saying, you know, he's been an X-Men longer than you. Uh, we trust him. We, we probably trust him more than we trust you so you're really out of line and Bishop kind of begrudgingly is like, well, okay, I won't kick his ass now, but I'm going to keep an eye on him and the first wrong move he makes, I'm going to pounce, right? Which is... That's not entirely a bad idea, right? If he really feels like this is the guy that's going to kill the X-Men, and he feels like he can't take action without proof, then you wait for proof, and you then you make your move. And that's that's kind of a kind of goes to his like police type training, right? Um, so that's that's cool for Bishop, but he still doesn't, obviously doesn't like Gambit, and Gambit obviously doesn't like being accused of something that. Eh, depending on <laughs> how much you want to retcon stuff, either has or hasn't even thought about doing yet. Um, and so, with that, hostility there, and then not only that, but it's like one thing to be like tricked into working together, but it's very obvious from the outset that Gene's motivation is, I know you don't like each other, but if you're both going to be X-Men, you got to get along, so we're going to we're going to put you guys together, and you're going to work this out. Um, it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of interesting, like, because Gambit and Bishop both are like, oh, I don't know if I really want to do this, but they both do it, right? Which is, which is cool and interesting, and I think speaks to both of the characters, that they put their obligation to their teammates, their friends, their family, as X-Men, above their own personal feelings, right? They both make a decision that, I don't like this guy, I kind of want to punch him in the face all the time, you know, both ways, right? Um, and, but, I mean, Gene's kind of right. Like, if we're both going to be X-Men, we got to be on the same side. And, you know, if Gamus wants to say, I'm not a traitor, I'm a real X-Man, and Bishop wants to say, I'm from the future and I want to help the X-Men prevent a, this dark future and I want to be a good X-Man, then yeah, they have to work together. So I, that's a really kind of cool idea to throw them in the danger room together and then on the mission. And they both kind of reluctantly accept it. And much like an Executioner song where Bishop kind of bonded with Wolverine, I don't know if I would say at the end of this issue these guys are friends, but they definitely worked okay together, right? Like the danger room was going okay, the mission goes okay, uh, Bishop even gets kind of tacit approval from Gambit to like cut loose a little bit against the Acolytes. Like, these aren't your average bad guys. You can kind of let go and, and play into your more aggressive methodology here and it's okay and you got, I got your back. And, I don't know, it's just, I enjoyed seeing that, especially, you know, because these are two, two of the hot new characters of the 90s for the X-Men, right? I know, uh, you know, Cable goes in that bunch too, but he's, you know, he's off the board for the moment. Um, so I really enjoyed seeing kind of the two, two 90s cool guy X-Men, um, you know, playing together in the sandbox. Um, the other thing was seeing Gambit do some cool different stuff with his powers, right? Um, we talked about the tire swing thing, and then laying down, like, the energy pockets with the cards to, like, not to put out the fire, right? It doesn't extinguish the fire. Nothing about energy that would put out a fire. But the energy pushes the... Like, the energy takes up space, right? So his little explosions take up space that push the fire back because they're not flame explosions. They're these energy 
blast, whatever you want to call it, when his cars blow up. And so, just science and physics says if the his energy cards are taking up this space, the fire can't take it up. So him to use that as a barrier was really interesting. Um, I thought, I, I thought it was cool. I can see where some someone might nitpick and say they don't like that, or they don't. They can maybe explain to me how it wouldn't really work, and that, that's okay. But I thought it was, you know, in the context of an X Men comic, a pretty cool little power. Um, but yeah, I guess that's about all I have to say, really. It's, um, obviously, love Storm showing up. Any any case to see Storm, um, and then you know the the end where. We don't really get a rebuttal to Senator Kelly's argument other than Professor X just turning off the TV, like saying nonsense. But it, also, though, his face doesn't say nonsense. His face kind of says, huh. Because he says, what does he say here? Um, you know, there was a 14 employees in the school building when it exploded. Um, some people died. More people were hurt. Uh... We know it was the acolytes, but Senator Kelly has this to say, and he says, you know, I wish I could say that I'm shocked at what I've seen here today. The truth is, I have spent the past 10 years of my life predicting just such an incident. There are people in the government and the liberal media who, for whatever reason, would like you to believe we have nothing to fear from the mutant populace. I urge the American public to wake up and see the mutant menace for what it is, and for no other reason than for the children. And... There is no rebuttal, right? There's no Xavier doesn't go on TV and say, "Oh no, it's not a liberal thing; it's a human thing," right? To give people acceptance and the benefit of the doubt. Um, that's not it's not being liberal; that's just being human. Um, you know, but but Senator Kelly taking it very seriously as these people are dangerous and we need to protect ourselves and our future generations from the danger it portents. And obviously, gonna be a lot more to come out of that right in the X-Men story uh, in the next several months. Um, and look forward to seeing that kind of play out, you know, how the X-Men do react, what what actions the Senator takes to uh, kind of re-influence, come back in the limelight uh, in the X-Men stories as an, as an adversary on the political realm. Um, but yeah, all right, so overall, I thought the artwork was pretty strong. Um thought it looked pretty good. So this is good, Peterson. Uh, there's a couple of wonky panels, but overall looks looks nice. Um, Bishop looks a little... Uh, hmm. <laughs> like he's making the Bill Cosby pudding pop face a couple of times. <laughs> it's not the only one. Uh, the nurse also makes it at one point. Um, so that's kind of funny. But o- overall, uh, a very well-drawn book. And a very well-written book that that had a lot of opportunities to falter and didn't, I don't think. And if you disagree with me, please let me know. I'd love to to talk about that, uh, a different perspective on how some of the issues are handled. Um, but I felt like did a pretty good job of of tackling the subject and told a pretty good story and got some pretty good character moments and saw some characters interact that don't normally so. Uh, I won't grade this with the six claws. I'll do something a little different. Um, see, Gambit, there's four aces in a card deck, and his most common throwing card is an ace. Um, so we'll do, we'll do out of four aces. But I'm going to throw in uh, a wild card. We'll, we'll have a, 
a Joker modifier. <laughs> I'm making this way too complicated, but that's okay. It's kind of fun. Uh, Grant, you can tell me what you think about this this rating system for Gambit's Gumbo. But um, I, I don't think this is quite perfect enough to be four aces. But see, the thing about six claws is you have a little more wiggle room, right? There's there's a little more gradation. Uh, between the ratings. Four doesn't give you a lot of room. That's why, you know, because when I first started the podcast all those many years ago, um, I tried to do a three-claw rating and just found that to be torture, right? Trying to say what's two and what's three, and, yeah, it was terrible. It was terrible. Um, just a bad idea all the way around trying to do a three-claw rating. So six made more sense. It gave you more options. It gave you more distinction between like a one to a two to a three to a four to five to six than just three. But four is not much better than three, so I'm going to have to do something to make up. Because I don't think this is four aces, but I think three aces, I mean, that's 75%. That's not great either. So I'm going to say we have a Joker modifier, like a wild card, and this this book, Uncanny X-Men 298, was three aces and a joker. So it's like a three and a half out of four. <laughs> uh, sometimes I talk and I listen to myself and I'm just like, I'm kind of stupid. But it's a goofy stupid. I hope you're having fun. I hope you're having fun listening and uh, enjoying the podcast. So that's going to do it. That's our special... Uh, went a little longer than I thought. I kind of got... Kind of got stuck chasing some rabbits, but hopefully they're fun rabbits. So, anyway, that's uh that's the episode. That's Gambit's Gumbo on Uncanny X Men 298. I hope that Grant likes this. I hope other people like it too. <laughs> as much as I love Grant, I don't know if I can justify making a podcast just for him all the time. So, um, no, I, no, maybe I could. I don't know. But anyway, um, please give me some feedback. I don't get a whole lot of feedback all the time, but I would love to hear whether this is a worthwhile endeavor for the podcast that goes nicked. Um, and speaking of that, uh, you can like the Facebook page. Twitter is at Snickcast. So until next time, everyone, hugs and snicks. Bye-bye. And snacks.